0: Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and what you're about to hear is another panel that I recorded at the Steampunk World's Fair, which is held in New Jersey, and the panel was one of the most interesting ones I have ever sat through with all of my years of convention traveling. This was about Victorian archaeology, and on the panel was Dr. Brad Hayford, who is an archaeologist now, a field technician in archaeology named Lex, and author Gail Carriger, who is not only a steampunk author, but is also an archaeologist. So I thought that was fascinating that she's got this incredible background for writing adventure stories. So it's awesome. And you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. Steam World's Fair is the Twitter for Steampunk World's Fair. And if possible, please go to Patreon.com/AmberUnmasked and support the show financially. And if you can't support the show, you can share the Patreon links. If you go over there, you don't have to be a registered user just to share the links. That's really appreciated. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy this panel.
1: totally loud since we're not in mic, but I, I can usually fairly well. Um, we're going to maybe put a few images up here, maybe talk about, well, we'll tell you some of what archaeology happened in the, the Victorian era, and then maybe we'll discuss what it would be like in a steampunk world, and ask for questions from all of you guys, creative input, things like this, uh, pretty good. Uh, but we would start with uh, introducing ourselves. You want to go first? I mean, everybody can probably know sure, you, but... Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Uh, So I'm going to start with the little song and dance I used to give my students all the time, which is This is my cell phone. It's on mute. I'd appreciate it if you all put yours on mute (laughs) Uh, The rule of the game is if you don't and it rings I get to answer the call and ask about your sex (laughs) lives
3: So
2: I'm Gail Carriger I write steampunk, but uh, in my former life, I was an archaeologist. By profession, I was almost done with my PhD, and I got grandfathered back in to teach. So technically, I became faculty. My specialty is ceramic analysis, which means I'm a materials expert, not an area expert. And then my specific focus is technological transitions in kilns from open firings to closed firings to film firings. So I went all over the world to different places I've done stuff in um, Northern Italy for Etruscan, and I finished up in Peru, and I did some Syrian stuff as well. Uh, So yeah, that's my friends. Oh, (laughs) a couple of master's degrees.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Hi, my name is Lex. I'm an archaeologist or an archaeological field technician. Technically, and have been for over five years. I specialize in digging holes really fast and well, <laughs> and identifying ma- material culture and, uh, you know, delineating sexiness. Things. Um, yeah, I don't dig all over the world. I like to go on adventures though. Um, and yeah, I'll be telling you about how sweaty and filthy and wonderful archaeology. <laughs>
1: All right, I'm Brad Hafford. Um, officially, when I write uh, my scholarly articles, etc., it's William B. I go by my middle name in my sort of fiction world, because I do write steampunk, culture history, and things like this. And then when I write other things, I do it under my first name. In a way, it keeps in my head the two worlds a little bit separate, but they merge sometimes. You know, I like to imagine, when I'm excavating, what would this potentially be like but I can't keep that into my analysis, I can only put that into my fiction, so. um, I am at the University of Pennsylvania, it's where I got my PhD a long time ago in 2001, and I stayed because we have a great museum. And lately I have been looking into and digitizing all of the records from the excavations of one of the first cities in the world, the ancient city of Ur in southern Iraq. Now, Penn and the British Museum jointly excavated it from 1922 to 1934. So I've been reading a whole lot of the letters from the field and the field notes and all of this stuff and getting very interested in, in the people and their interaction and their conflicts and all of that. So not just the ancient stuff, but also the not so ancient, but bordering on Victorian. We're into the well, Georgian era really, but um, I thought we could talk some about that we don't really have an agenda, we're going <laughs> to talk about anything you might want to hear about. And um, if we get this working, I can show a few slides and tell you about, um, I am an Area Specialist pretty much, I'm a Near Eastern Archaeologist, so I I work in Iraq currently, I've worked in Syria up until the Civil War, so put about 15 years there. I've worked in Greece and Egypt, so Eastern Mediterranean is my world. Or Just America, which is now I didn't want. Sorry, this is like how small we were all <laughs> <in so>. the archaeology <laughs> was. My yeah.
2: first M. S. degree was on Raqqa, eighth uh, to twelfth century.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, <laughs> Rocket <interesting. laughs> <laughs> 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 Raqqa has this awesome industrial complex. It's Aleppo, which unfortunately has now been bombed. And uh, mm. the site in Raqqa was already a salvage site because of urban sprawl.
3: But, uh, <laughs> so uh,
2: it's an amazing Islamic um, industrial complex where they produced uh, a lot of pottery that you may or may not be familiar with, including the turquoise stuff from the Islamic, the Islamic era. Um, like <laughs> hippo? And uh, yeah, and also the, they're a very interesting complex because they have a glaze and metalworking alongside ceramic work, and so you see interesting um, concurrent transitions between like the colors and glazes and the, the glasswork that's going on because it's very similar technology and so you can see artisans sharing ideas. The other interesting thing about Raqqa, while well, he's getting set up, is that it is a POW camp as well and it seems pretty clear that, because they're at war with the Byzantine Empire, it seems pretty clear that they're using at a certain point in their history, Greek prisoners of war to produce pottery for an Islamic market that's imitating Chinese stuff. (laughs) One of the things I love to tell people about archeology span is that it's a lot, there's a lot more sharing of ideas across cultures than early archeologists initially thought,
1: Yeah, it's true, and and, you know, um, excavators even, H.R. Hall, for instance, when he first started working at Ur, 1918 or so, he was using Turkish of War as his excavators, basically, he would tell them to dig um, so it was right at the end of World War One. So early archeology Yeah, pretty punch yeah, The,
2: the Romans would conscript artisans, so they take um, and they would take like you could get constri- cons- conscripted into the army because you know the brickmaker in particular. They loved the brickmaker because they just take them along with them and be like, okay, the, the army comes in and then the artisan team comes in and is like, right <laughs> hey guys, let's get some real work done. Yeah.
1: Where do we want to take it? Do you want uh, to see some of the Near East, or I mean, do you, do you, what?
4: I came in last minute, so whatever y'all want to do, <laughs> I'm just here to tell the about stories game about us. our, our yeah. Or
1: um, I mean, that's kind of what inspires a lot of my fiction is just the concepts that I'm finding. Either the ancient artwork, and I can think, what would that be like if it turned into a metal automaton or something, you know, powered by steam? I want to know what would the Ottoman steampunk look like. I think there is a little bit really, but not as much as I'd love to see. So um, maybe they would use ancient Mesopotamian imagery in some of their, uh, you know, the sultans concept of making airships, etc. There's a
2: book called The Gates of Hercules, I think it is. Um, by David Constantine, which hypothesized the steampunk Alexander the Great. Oh. So what would happen if he had access to sort of steam technology and stuff? And that's a very, very fun thought experiment. I uh, yeah. I and urge you to check it out. It's not a very well-known book, but it's really interesting, especially from, he really did his research. The archeological perspective is fascinating.
1: Yeah, and one of the first steam engines was actually invented in the Hellenistic period. Precisely
2: why he uh, hypothesized there, that they yeah. turned it into war engines.
1: What would, Hellenistic steampunk. That would be really great. And we can talk more on the uh, literature panel too about that, maybe about how we can yeah. increase the broaden the steampunk. Yeah, what I guess. is that title
2: again? I think it is called the Gates of Heracles, but okay. um, David Constantine is the name of the author. And if you sort of did David Constantine Alexander was great. Am I right? Do you know it? Um, yeah,
4: I think it's
1: David. okay. <laughs> Sorry, you. Um I just have a quick question. With uh, the steampunk uh, like archaeology, the archaeologists themselves would it be more of a I vic- I was thinking would it be more of like the Victorian archaeology where it was more about collecting instead of preserving kind of mindset instead of like preserving uh, like uh, a chunk of wall they would collect it and yeah. put it in there like. You know, Take it, it away. Or something. <laughs> yeah. No context. That's, that's generally the way it happened. Now, when we write a steampunk world, maybe they are more concerned. I don't know. They we should be.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there was um, the Egyptian society. What's it called? Oh, curses. Anyway, um, Amelia B. Edwards, who was one of the early explorers of uh, one of the first females to travel to Egypt. She went back and wrote these books about Egypt that actually sparked off additional collecting, and then got upset about it, um, and started the first concept of conservation during this time period. Yeah. So it is it is um, possible that you could have people who were interested in preservation, um, but you'd have a uh, struggle, I think, to get out of the basic Victorian mindset of you know protecting the natives from themselves. <laughs> Including the native artifacts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what drove most of that in the 19th century was filling museums, the world museums in the West. You know, they wanted to find this stuff and bring it. And some of the stuff they brought back is enormous. And the technical needs to try and they would cut these gigantic stone reliefs into pieces, so there'd be camel loads. Then they would move them down and ship them, and then reassemble them in the museums. Even the one that we have at Penn, you can still see where they sawed them into three pieces.
2: And the, the British dropped an obelisk in the middle of the Mediterranean at one way. Uh, because the French had gone and got an obelisk, which is in Paris somewhere. And uh, and so the British were like, we want an obelisk! <laughs> picked up this obelisk the the ship sank and so there's an obelisk at the bottom of the Mediterranean.
1: Even wow. some of the Elgin marbles actually sank at one point, and this inspired, they wanted to get them back, so they inspired some of the earliest underwater stuff, with these hoses and the giant you know, sponge diver things, I went down and picked up some of these things.
2: That'd be so. a fun uh, steampunk idea, it would be sort of Captain Nemo uh, archaeology.
1: Yeah, I'd love to see that. <laughs> uh,
2: do you have more questions? We can run with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering, building off of that, how much of there is the fat germ-
4: Repatriation. Mm-hmm. Repatriation is a very mm-hmm. serious issue. It's a touchy
2: subject.
4: <laughs> Mixed feelings. Uh, in Rome right now, uh, so that you know, they they got a bunch of a bunch of Egyptian obelisks, and then they you know put crosses on them because they're just large phallic symbols. and Put a cross on it. until better. <laughs> 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 Egypt is like, hey, so can I? You know, this is obviously from us. Like, we know that you guys took this. It's like, no, we put a cross on it. It's not the same thing anymore. It's ours now. It's a little, a little touchy. There's, um,
2: so there's some there's strict regulations in different parts of the world. Um, so American archaeologists operate under NACRA, which is very heavy and quite restrictive, and it makes you terrified if you're excavating. I did the book corner. Yeah, stay a away a from a gaga 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 baril. Baril. <laughs> the goddamn burials. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> whereas, like, in direct counter to that, down in uh, where I was last in Peru, uh, there's burials everywhere, and nobody really cares about the burials. Um, you know, there are children, like, coming out of the wall. It's a fascinating thing. Um, But God forbid you get a whole pot because then you have to call in the goddamn army because (laughs) then you'll have looters and there'll be this whole problem. So um, it's very different in different parts of the world. Repatriation is touchy because, um, you know, places like the British Museum um, and particularly the uh, Scottish one the medical museum in Scotland. In Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Museum. Um, have refused repatriation, so uh, countries have requested to have artifacts or bodies or of their ancestors returned, that they refuse. Um, but on the flip side, uh, many of the countries that have asked for repatriation have then had, say, civil wars, and their their major statues bombed or sites destroyed. And so there's a the love of artifacts sort of makes it very difficult to uh, not. Realize that as negative as it is to hold these things, they're still there because of that thievery. So, in most um,
1: cases, in the um, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, we're operating under a system they called partage, which was some of the artifacts stay in country and the rest go to the excavators. So at Ur, for example, 50% were supposed to remain in Iraq, which was being created at the time. It was just after World War I, and the other half got split between Philadelphia and London. Then, around 1934, they wrote a new law in Iraq that said no artifacts can go out, and that kind of ended the excavation because much of the goal at the time was to get artifacts. By 1970, UNESCO passed a law that was about the trade in artifacts, and our museum signed on right away. In fact, we had written our own just prior to it which said we won't collect anymore, basically. But what we have now, we can keep to display to the people who can't necessarily get to those countries. If everything from the past in Iraq stayed in Iraq, how many people would see it? This is the reasoning, anyway, for world museums. Whereas maybe they can get to New York or something, because they're near there, maybe they're less likely to go see it elsewhere. From the Iraqi perspective, though, if they have all the artifacts, they get more tourism, they can get more money, they can maybe be proud of their heritage. So there's arguments both sides. I, I tend to believe in world museums, but I, I hope that doesn't, you know. I know. <laughs> I it's really a that. big
2: debate, especially in the U.S., because this act is so strict here. So we don't For talk about For very good reason. For very of of good
4: reason. Oh, there were definitely days in our period of time of interest where, you know, yeah. you could go with your family, would be, you know, and just kind of like dig in there, have some lunch,
2: look at bodies, take whatever you found. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, a bad scene. The mummy unwrapping. Oh, yeah, of Victoria. course. But the okay. mummy, mummy unwrapping. Bus. Pop. Yeah. The, the mummy does. There's the fertil. There are huge tracts of suffix that are fertilized with uh, cat mummies in particular, because there were so many cat mummies. They did ship them back, and then they'd be like, "Oh, excellent fertilizer." <laughs> and sell the rest of the ground. I heard so. they
1: even use some mummies just to throw in as fuel for training engines sometimes. I don't know if that's completely true, but I've no, heard no. it. <laughs> I that
4: uh, the gentleman, uh, the side to that, you know, we talk about trying to find treasure and, oh, the arrow is thick with mummy dust because I just trampled, you know, like 50 of them to get to the stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, so it, it's heartbreaking. Uh-huh.
1: But at some of these yeah. sites, you really can see bones just washing out everywhere. Yeah. There's, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, somehow there needs to be well then, there's the, like, so,
2: well, there's the like so there's the um, the dam in, in in Egypt, right? Or like if you visit the Cairo Museum, it's like the single biggest <laughs> argument against repatriation, frankly. The it's, worst, it the, it's the worst curated,
1: worst <laughs> preserved museum on planet. So, like, and yet they've got amazing things. You just you don't know what you're looking at. And you
4: don't know how long
2: it's gonna. <laughs>
4: Isn't and not allowed to tour anymore? Because he did the world tours. Isn't he
2: back?
3: Well, for somebody it? knocked off his head. You know, on. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: but no. s- some things have also happened in Western museums. There are things that have gone missing or been oh. destroyed. Maybe not quite the level that it has happened in some other places, but you know we're not perfect either. So you know if we say oh you can't care for your own stuff, plenty well, of things that say you can't care. For
2: Right, let's get on to something else. It's
3: depressing. Yeah? Repatriation. That's
2: the act of returning an artifact to its splint.
1: because we had permits under partage. So half of it came to Penn Museum, for instance. So if we say, that was brought back here, we have all the records, we've got the permit. In fact, we've got permit number 001 from the Iraqi government, first one ever issued, because it was a new country. But it technically says it was legal, but if we can show that anything was looted or it was agreed it would go back, we have to send those back.
2: The other thing is archeologists by and large aren't, we should not be and mostly are not interested in something that's provenance can't be traced. It's useless. Doesn't tell us anything. Doesn't matter how valuable it is. Frankly, it's not valuable to research, and therefore we should not have any interest in it. There's uh, no data. So I want questions, please, not comments. I
0: wanted to ask you uh, about your
2: writings and how you use archaeology in writing. I, I'm familiar with yours, but not this gentleman.
1: Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> You know, for, a, for quite a while, I mainly write short stories, um, and the, f- the first ones, I kind of avoided archaeology because I didn't want to confuse the worlds in a way, you know? But more and more, I'm coming into using at least some of the information. not usually about archaeologists, but it might be about uh, the time period and the people. So I wrote one about the Alaska Gold Rush, which I've gone steampunk with, and there's a kind of... Uh, What's the title? yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Oh, look, I can't even remember my own title. Sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> it will come to me. <laughs> um, it's in this anthology. Anyway, Steampunk versus Aliens, basically. Oh, okay. So uh, I, I did... They're going to give a copy of that as a prize somewhere. I gave them a copy to the people here. But anyway... Um, oh, that's okay. We like the anthology. In the, yeah, you can find it in the anthology and then my name would be in there because you wouldn't find it under the story title anyway. <laughs> Clockwork Universe, Steampunk versus Aliens is that one. Um, but a lot of the research that I've done, reading the old letters and everything, gives me a feel for the people of the period and what they might be looking for. And in that case, they're after gold, so it's kind of like the rush to try and find artifacts, but I, I wanted to separate myself a little. Now I'm doing more and more where I might, I might actually bring archaeology into stories. Do you do that, Dan? I mean, do you
2: well, I tend to. You'll you'll notice one of the things I tend to do is take my characters to places I've been because I excavated there, and that I, sometimes they'll visit a, an excavation. So the excavation in Blameless is like an amalgam of the excavation I was on and a, a, a different one. That's in a, a that's a northern Italian Etruscan site, um, and so. I, but mostly that's because I feel like traveling to a place gives you like the smell and the light and the feel of just walking, the sensation of what the, the earth, the color of the earth, things like that, which I, I just want to be more accurate about and it is really hard to, to find that information out. Mostly I use the skill sets in research that I learned as an archeologist. Um, I'm not against it, but the, you'll note there is no archeology span character because if really- went to Egypt. Uh, yeah, yeah, but they're pretty vile. Like, <laughs> the archeologists from the time period are pretty awful, yeah. laddish. Yeah, so I kinda just, there's a great book called, by, who's it by? Uh, the Rape of the Nile, who's it by? Uh, of the nap. Anyway, it's called The Rape of the Nile. I can't imagine there's any other book named that. Um, which, if you read, you start to get an eye for these things if you do a lot of research. You read a book and you're like, this started out as someone's PhD
3: thesis. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one
2: started out as someone's PhD it's, It is mostly about this one Italian excavator who's just this great Berligoni or something. It's this insane character who just like brutalized the... That's what he does is he? Yeah, no, yeah. he's the guy that He's in a fucking bonkers t- and t- totally fascinating. And most of the book yeah. is him and then it's like bracketed by some other evil doings in here by archaeologists. But you can tell he was writing his thesis on that guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> t- <laughs> total crazy But <laughs> well, he would be a wonderful evil villain <laughs> for <laughs> right, really. well, the a
3: steampunk. That's the other
1: problem good. is that if you know too much about a topic, sometimes your tendency is to go into that minutia that you would in your research and maybe you're going to be making the book kind of boring. Yeah, <laughs> you know, going on and on about one or two things, and you need narrative and story. You, you know? need so to leave it
4: out most of the time. Three pages about the, the straight your walls work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: oh, the, the man with the green face.
3: Yeah. Oh, so, A
1: lot of what steampunk book is is taking something uh, modern and and going back and using using a scheme based technology to reproduce it, what do you think? each of you think would be the, the what is your favorite archaeological tool, and how would you steampunk it? Native. Oh. Yeah.
3: <laughs> 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 let's be real
4: about it. Like, let's talk about the era. Let's talk about the people who were the actual archaeologists. Did very little work. It's it true. was all hired help. Um, time, yeah. Oh, and it was it's so bad. That, that, that's great great that's why well, I'm I'm I'm.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: we, call, we call
2: them shovel jockeys. Uh. Shovel <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we, You know, for me it's just a trowel, but you don't really steampunk a trowel unless you make one that's spinful. <laughs> 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 Put some gears on it. <laughs> They use bulldozers? I mean sometimes people do, which is kind of unfortunate, but you know, something that in
4: Virginia, to be fair, Phil. Like yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, Phil. Y- yeah, Yeah, but
1: you can I mean I would call anything post about twelve hundred BC Phil, because I want to know what's beneath them, so <laughs> <laughs> all that later stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, <laughs> me, <laughs> and like just research. go through the Romans. Who cares yeah, about
2: the Romans? <laughs> 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 you know everything about so <laughs> um, many yeah, totally yeah. records. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's so weird.
4: we we get
2: it. I like the uh, so I hate sieving. I didn't do much field work because it's dirty and
3: dirty. <laughs> 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 I'm I feel like so <laughs> you if
2: most uh, universities to become an archaeology archaeology major you need at least two years of field or two summers worth of field work and I did I did one summer of field work and cut my hand open and immediately got removed from the field because I've cut my hand open and ended up in the lab and I was like why would you ever go back?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: because dry brushing nails. I, I know. After love the lab. Nail. After nail. nail. Exactly. It might be shard after shard after shard. The shard. <laughs> but the lab, the lab doesn't get up as late. We eat better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at working. Anyway, so where was I? So sieving. So I would like a sort of a steampunk yeah. automated okay. sieve okay. would be really good. Like clock like clock weighted, or something or so, or on these shaker screens. Yeah, like, are these big screens, and you have to shake to get small fragments. Um, I have a very dear friend who's a fish bone expert. Oh um, and And uh, yeah, but but she has a career because for years sim uh, holes were too big, and so they never caught fish bones. And so, like guys, I had to tell you this, but. We, humanity, ate a fuckload more fish than you think we did. <laughs> <laughs> Archaeologists didn't catch the bones for like 300 years.
4: They also did shovel broadcasting. I mean, like, yeah throw it up in the air and yeah. see what Woo! comes out. We know basically winnowing with <laughs> dig and <laughs> dig a hole
2: somewhere. It's fine. That's the 70s. Just yeah, there's actually
4: a
1: bone in the fish, the otolith, where you kind of count old it was? Basically, it grows new bone every year or something like this. So people study and look for these tiny little. Ovaries, yeah, yeah. They study them. bizarre. I'm much more the of a fielder. I want to be on the trench, just uh. digging I've <laughs> dug in uh, in Greece, uh, Syria, Egypt, uh, Iraq, you know. So uh, including the U.S. corners the region, like you were saying, oh, near oh, yeah. uh, and in the U.K. So
2: I might have studied some of your pots. <laughs> So most of the time, this is like division in archaeology, right? Most of the time, they do the work, and I see the cool stuff.
3: Uh, (laughs) So who gets the credit? (laughs) Uh, The the guy who's running the
2: (laughs) 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 Whoever publishes first. (laughs) (laughs) Just like in
0: fiction. (laughs) the lady
2: in the red jacket, and then the gentleman with the bracer. Um,
0: I'm just curious, you were talking before about
2: and how they would react with
3: modern
4: technology? Oh, the Ottoman Empire, absolutely. Yeah. Mongols, uh, Mongols. That, yeah, be great. Genghis Khan, can you imagine uh, the siege engine, do? like what would, <laughs> <laughs> Guns. <laughs>
1: yeah. I think almost any time could benefit from it, but Certainly. you know, logically how can you put it into some cultures? I mean, would ancient Egypt have a steam engine? Maybe mm-hmm. Roman Egypt or Hellenistic, uh, you'd find Yeah, Egypt, like? yeah, you yeah. Know, because the, Greeks, like the Romans, right? yeah.
2: You could do. Uh, I mean, it depends. You can go clock pump quite easily, so you could get something in um, early India, maybe, or, or certainly China, Japan, um, Korea, places like that. I well, mean, one
1: of, one of the things that I was saying would inspire me were often these things. Whereas this guy, this uh, Lamasu, is a really interesting figure from Assyrian time periods, right? Neo Assyrian, and they were. Uh, protected, they were at gates, you know, and unfortunately many of these are being destroyed right now by the Islamic State. But to me they're fascinating, and even though I might not have the Neo-Assyrians running home full them full, that might be interesting. I might have the Ottomans recreating these things as big tanks or something, and can you imagine it in metal? It's really bizarre. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman with the bracelet?
2: Yes, uh, so
4: to, to back up the steam train a little
3: bit, what brought each of you to the
4: um, I'm spooky. Nasty. I'm a goth in my natural environment, and uh, I love fanciness and fancy things. And I also like the idea of uh, revisiting history and being creative. I love the maker culture. I think is one of my favorite things. And like, yeah, that's how. I don't, I don't write. These guys are the writers. I just. Wear hats,
1: (laughs) For me, it is that just, that what if, you know, whenever I'm digging something, I like to think about who was the real person who maybe made this thing that I've just found, Uh, and then who was it that uh, found it if I'm reinvestigating. For instance, when I worked in Egypt, I was sort of retracing the steps of George Reisner, who had begun there in 1906 uh, on the Giza Plateau, so we were working in the Western Cemetery right next to the Great Pyramid, and we were digging those sort of, lesser people who worked for Pharaoh. And many times, there wasn't much in the burials. But uh, And many of them been cleared by Reisner already. We were just remapping, because he never published this stuff. He dug it, one of the sections of that in 1939, and the other uh, much earlier in 1915 or so. So one of the things I was finding was I would dig through the detritus of World War II or World War I in order to get to 5th Dynasty Egypt, which was really interesting. So the first tomb I found that he missed I opened up in there and I thought, this has not been touched before, it's going to be great. I opened it up and there's all this dirt in there and there's little pieces of foil and tiny bits of newspaper. I thought, wait, this is modern, what's going on? Well, it turns out that he had weakened the corner of that, it's a very small uh, grave. But it it then filled up with sand that was blown in from his time until it finally sealed itself. So when I dug through all of that, one of the pieces of paper said, Hit Germans by Night, and it was dated 1944. Wow. On the back of it was a picture of Hermann Göring. And I went, wow, I just met the Nazis in a tomb in Egypt. <laughs> but beneath all that sand, then there was this undisturbed burial from you know 2,500 BC. So amazing stuff, and to think all about that, and then imagine the other what-ifs that I can't explain with science or Sometimes you can only go so far, right? But I can, in my fiction, I can make up whatever that person was like and give them other attributes or whatnot.
2: I think it's a natural synergy. So, archaeologists, by our nature, we look at objects in order to understand culture. And objects are kind of a whole, what steampunk's about, right? Like, people create characters and then objects to represent those characteristics. Like, I mean, it's part of the, part of the whimsy of Steampunk, so, I mean, I, in my writing a lot of, um, a lot of characters are defined by objects because that's kind of the way I think about the world, um, so that's why I, I do lots of clothing descriptions and things like that, but hats and, you know, because uh, that's kind of just a natural to me, I think, yeah. to explain the world through artifacts essentially. And I think it's natural to a lot of
1: punkers. <laughs> yeah, and I'm learning whenever I'm doing this research too about a time period I didn't know. Some of the true stuff that I find is fascinating. You know, some of these people hated each other, and you know, they would uh, boycott one excavator over another. You know, it's really strange. And then you find that, then you start thinking almost murder mystery. You know, what if one of the bodies I just dug was really a guy from 150 years ago that they didn't like and they shoved? Into the <laughs> murder mystery would be fun that way. I think.
2: I'm dying to write a mystery book, you're, like, exactly. I, 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 a friend of mine I hypothesized a mystery novel where there's a body in a kiln, and there's uh, an investigator in the past, probably medieval England, but there's an investigator in the past investigating the murder, and then an archeologist in the present Ooh. investigating the murder, yeah. and they both come to separate conclusions about who done it, and I was like, oh, that'd be such a good book. Yes. <laughs>
1: but, but even political conflict, like you can see in this cartoon from Punch, You know, they, this is Henry Layard who was working in northern Iraq uh, in the 19th century, and you can see that he's digging out this, and yet all this other, you know, there's corruption in the government, and they're representing all the money that they're spending to bring these kinds of things into the museum. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Yeah, <laughs> I've been going off the stage.
2: Um, other questions? <laughs> You've asked them already, haven't you? Did I? Did you?
0: Oh, oh, I think so. you. Uh, no, <laughs> There were, in the past, it seems like there were more distinct cultures in some way. There wasn't as, I mean, with technology now, things, things feed into each other more, so there's more. And especially something like Steampunk, where we're now all creating these objects that mix these different eras. So take it 500 years in the future for archaeologists looking back at that. What does this mix of time periods and stuff do to future archaeology and trying to figure out when and where and how things... It's all rituals. It's all
1: <laughs> <laughs> every archaeologist doesn't understand something, they call it ritual. It's all rituals.
4: to be fair, there are sometimes contexts that are definitely, like, occult-related occasionally, but I'm I'm loath to say that every blue bead is a sign of, like, some sort of spiritual identity, but, you know.
2: Human beings hate the fact that human beings are not logical, and archaeologists, often the most logical of anthropologists hate it more than any <laughs> Uh, sometimes the explanation is that because we could, or because we liked it, or because we can, or because we were drunk, or <laughs> because we're idiots. That's humanity.
4: There was a really cool, um, you know, to speak of like people in the past. And, you know, like people collected things that they liked. Like there was a plate that broke in Monticello, and uh, they found the plate in the midden, but then there was also a piece of the center that had been moved to one of the slave contexts and somebody had obviously like picked it up and had it because they liked it and it was pretty. And you know, we're magpies, <laughs> we're all magpies yeah. here. Like, yeah. Definitely.
1: Sometimes you do find something that clearly is older than it should be in the layer of, that you're digging in and, and usually you figure, well, it's like an heirloom. Somebody kept it for a very long time and maybe that's the only explanation you come up with and maybe that's what we would start to think This Nix is just people holding on to stuff. Which maybe we would then prove that no, it's all made in the same time period and it would really confuse
2: you then. <laughs> 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 I, I think,
0: um, there, there also are,
2: are uh, quite a few examples of regression technology. So um, technological transitions is my, was my PhD thesis. And I'm particularly interested in voluntary abandonment, which is when a culture takes a technology that, or has a technology that you think would make their lives easier or the logic dictates that you would keep this technology and they, in fact, ignore it. The best example of this is um, the the Brits were occupied by the Romans for about 200 years, which the British hate, <laughs> would like to forget. Um, uh, but one of the things they did is kept their roads and certain aspects of the hygiene, but uh, they rejected their pottery, at least in the mid to northern sections of England. Um, and so they had the potter's wheel, which was introduced by the Romans, and uh, they decided not to use it anymore and went back to 200-year-old technology, which had not been used in the 200-year interim. Um and started make hand building these incredibly ugly, dry pots. <laughs> which make no sense. They're not they're not any explanation you can come up with, believe me, they're not better for cooking, they're they're not better looking, they're not more useful, they're more fragile, they don't keep diff- they're just dumb. They're d <laughs> dumb pot. <dumb, laughs> The only logical explanation is that they were being British about it.
3: We'll invent
2: idea. the wheel in our own time. <laughs> Thank you very much. And they did. but uh, yeah. Persistent arm with the hairband erotic. Um, in the The hardest question. We're all white, so it's
4: really not that difficult, but a we're women, so that would be kind of do, do I get the language when I time travel?
2: It's always my question. Oh, okay um, It depends on if I get stuck there. I, wouldn't stuck
3: there. I
1: can't come back again. Yeah, I think I probably would. I'd be really curious, but then. Um, Part of the thing that draws me into archaeology is that many people can't tell me I'm wrong. You know, <laughs> <laughs> have been a long time. No, they can't well. speak up. No, I, I there's lots of arguments in our field. But um, you can kind of come up with a theory that looks like it fits it, and I imagine that we would go back and find out that we're completely wrong. And many most times, yeah. so that's a little scary. But yeah, I probably want to know. But what time? Gosh, uh, I don't know that I'd want to live in any of them because medicine was not good and.
2: It's always medicine. Yeah. I'd go back and
4: hang out with the Gnostics in the Middle East and uh, look at the transition of the Merkabah mysticism into what is the Kabbalah today. But I'd have to pretend to be a dude because they don't talk to women about that sort of thing at that period of time. So that's what I would do. Medieval occultism all the way.
2: I'd go back to Etruscan stuff, I think, because we know so little about it. Although I'm very curious about the Wari as well. But there are wild, crazy theories about the Etruscans being uh, matriarchal and things like that. So I'd be very interested in seeing how they treat women. I don't think they were, but... um, As to the puzzle, most of the things I think I would see solved if we cut our linguistics, like linear A or or the Etruscan language or the Mayan language, written languages that we don't really know... um, what they're saying, I'd like to see some
1: of those solved. Yeah, one of my biggest questions in research is the formation of cities, why we start living in cities, but you can't really go back to a time and say, oh, a city's being built, I, you know. Yeah, it, that's it, where I belong. It's <laughs> over a long period, so how can you really, you know, uh, maybe if you could see a time lapse, you know, if you could hang yeah. out in time and watch it move faster, and no, oh, okay, now I see what's happening, but <laughs> it's a hard one to solve, that's kind of why I study it.
2: Yeah, adult lady blue. Uh, what's the most unique or strange um, discovery through your field work or through your research? I can answer this one. I've got a ready answer for this. Because it makes, it's so, like, it's so completely an archaeological answer to you. So we found this pot. <laughs> That's your answer. Uh, the reason I, was, I went through is that uh, the site I was at was a long occupation site. So it's Wari, Inca to colonial. And they were, wanted to know if when the Spaniards came in, they imposed their kiln technology on the locals or not. So the pottery technology does change, but we're, we're interested in whether they told them to do it differently or whether they were using the same techniques to produce the pottery that the Spaniards wanted. And we found this pot, and it was just bizarre. So it's a massive pot, which they made, but it's open top which they didn't make, um, and it looks like a Spanish bucket, only very big. Um, it has lug, sideways lug handles, which the Incas did not do. Um, we found two of them, exactly the same. And they're just like they're just so weird. They're just a, like they're an absolute kind of nod to one culture being imposed on by another culture and trying to figure their shit out because <laughs> they make no sense. <laughs> they're just so that's that's probably one of my favorite. I
4: have a a few favorites, but um, I didn't actually find this one. But in Shirley Plantation on on the James River in Virginia, in the basement of the original house in the corner, they found an assemblage of quartz crystals, eagle talons, and forest tusks. And it was, I just love the fact that it was all found together, and like, you know, the documentation on it was really good. Nobody's making that up. That is a definite occult piece in history, and it was. So
3: cool. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. And I just excavated
4: a bunch of sexy privies in Philadelphia. We found a mammary bank that was broken. It's a bank that looks kind of like a boob. split it, and then you have to break it to get it open. Wow. And that was pretty
3: awesome.
1: Yeah. A lot of people ask me, you know, what's the best thing you found? Luckily, you didn't word it that way because that's kind of you know, by whose judgment, I guess. Um, I can say things that I found the most interesting. Uh, one of them was a lapidary workshop that you know was probably 2,2100 BC or so. Um, at first I didn't know what it was. I was inside the room of a mud brick building and I come down to the floor and I started finding a lot of beads. And then I found some tools and there was this brick that was out of place. It was sitting on the floor. I found out that it was exactly on the floor. It hadn't fallen out of the wall and this was where the person was sitting. I could tell because there were all the pieces half made beads of the tools that were making them and then some that were completed over here. And to me, I could imagine, I could see how that person worked. So they must have just left that workstation and the whole building, why they abandoned it, I don't know. But the whole thing collapsed and preserved it. So the moments in time like that, where I can really identify with how something's being made strike me as the most interesting, I think. Maybe not unique, because people were making things all the time, but really fascinating.
2: I've got a handle, um, this massive strap handle from a medieval um, Northern uh, Nottingham centered workshop. And it has the uh, strap handles that you have to press the interior of the pot to attach the handle after the pot's been made. And it's like 1400s or something. But you can see the fingerprints of the person who put that handle on it. Yep. Um, and that, that, that kind of stuff was really fun. <laughs> Or like, you know, you see the pieces of paper from the
4: monasteries with, like, you know, little kitty prints on them. Yeah, yeah. 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 At, at a Fairfield fair plantation, uh, there was, a, in the brickyard, there were definitely some cats. So, like, some of the really nice plays for example. That little
3: kitty prints. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a great tumbler called Medieval Pac, Um Medieval with the words P-O-C, P-O-C at the end. Um, and it's a Tumblr blog that does this kind of thing that sort of chronicles strange uh, personal touches that appear, specifically in medieval times, but also um, he was the one who, who broke the cat paws on the sides of the manuscripts. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's worth look. It's worth following. Uh, yeah, and the, with the red.
1: Uh, um, so I was just wondering, you're talking a lot about like of particularly about Middle East and uh, like East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know tools and utilities and stuff like that with a steam uh, of you know, twist on them. Um, is there any consideration either with work you've done or working you know, out there about how you know if we were to reimagine those things, how they might have affected theoretical frameworks or like sociological um, angles like orientalism in terms of how we view those cultures? Um, That's all I <laughs> So what impact these advances would have on the way we think about things? Yeah, well. basically, because, I mean, obviously, when we went through, it was that, like, you know, it's a few of these cultures never really advancing, right. or that they're primitive and um, whatever. Right. right. One of the things that I, I wonder about when I think about the Ottoman stuff is how would they absorb it? Even if we say, okay, the English start this kind of thing, they're all over the world, so the locals are going to start to adapt it and I think become, I hope, Uh, maybe more cable, yeah, (laughs) Um, uh, I wonder how would they adapt it and then would that lead to conflict with the great oppressors or whatever? Would we see uh, independence movements more quickly and would they start to use things like maybe build their own steam engines to go against them? Would they be able to amass that? Maybe there's a good story. Is that conflict um, rising much more quickly than independence movements before?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's a typical thought experiment because we wouldn't know how things would have changed if the technology was there, right? Like, oh, wow. um I'm always fascinated by the idea of what would happen if, uh, say, uh, nomadic peoples had advanced tech, um, which would, by its very nature, probably have to have been stolen, but still. <laughs> um, because there's there are interesting sort of cultural differences between nomadic agro and agro-pastoralists versus settled agrarian societies. Um, Dietary, uh, technological, culture, uh, and treatment of women in particular. So, um, and of course, nomadic peoples, by their very nature, live mu- leave much less of a record for us. So we just know very little about them. Uh, but I think things would be different if the technology were differently uh, dispersed. So, but that doesn't really answer your question. I don't know. If it's going answer to your question <laughs> beyond my hypothetical.
1: Yeah, a lot of the archaeologists were. Although they they did look like this often, um, <laughs> they also really loved to dress in local dress. You know, this is Henry Haynes dressing up kind of as as one of the Ottoman peoples anyway. And yeah, some of them for uh, the photos. <laughs> <window. laughs> <laughs> um, yeah,
4: that's
1: probably <laughs> know. but that's kind of fascinating too. I think they were fascinated with the cultures, but and emulating in an extent. But they also thought they were lesser and. I don't think we want to perpetuate that in our stories, but how do we deal with you know how true do we be to how beastly many of these people were, and how do we to more modern? I don't well, think I know, on to...
2: both sides of the fence, but yeah. the the most common sort of attitudes the Victorians had to external cultures was that they were children. They yeah. literally yeah. thought of them as less developed. Yeah. Um, so it was it was. Wasn't necessarily like they're inferior or anything. They're although that was part of it in many cases, but a lot of it was simply like they just don't know. You know, they need to be taught. Listen, they need to be civilized. They need to be educated. Yes. plus their little hearts. We just need to save them. Really yeah. You know. Uh, so there, there is that component to it. So you know.
1: Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, they're
2: not going to, you know, you discipline unruly really children by. Oh, By oh, George? Yes, the gentleman Off of what you
1: just said, uh, isn't that to a certain extent uh, the perpetual problem of human civilization? We always think, oh, well, everything that came before was leading up
3: to this. This is where we're supposed to be. Yeah. And
4: uh, not obviously depending. Uh, cultural imperialism of the past, I guess, but um, everybody thinks, well, this civilization—the
1: one I'm part of—is going to continue forever because this is where <coughs> we were meant to be. You know, I think if you survey random Americans, they, you know, wouldn't think of the fact that
3: it has to peak at some point and then decline because Although, that's oh, what you know, every it's
1: other civilization <laughs> has done. Um, yes,
3: no, maybe I think
2: you're struggling against the, the basic notion of linear progress. <laughs> which uh, I think if archaeology teaches us anything is that that doesn't exist. But I mean but we could get into very epistemological like Coonian uh, and you know, analysis at this juncture where which is a little <laughs> beyond the scope of the panel, but uh, like what is the nature of truth? What are, are we are we advancing or are we simply sick with it? like, you know, right. um, so, yeah, but it, it is very, very difficult to teach a human brain not to think in terms of progress, and I think part of it is just like, we, we need to believe that we're better now than we have been, otherwise, depression, madness, sadness, you know, end of days. Um, the fact that we aren't is irrelevant. No.
4: I think we're better in a lot of I'm very pleased that this is the time period that I was
0: born in. Very, <laughs> <laughs> very lucky. You get to shovel.
4: <laughs> I do I can be a shovel doggy. I can have. I can have a job. Mr. Hume was wrong, and you know I don't leave little high heel marks in my
3: basement <laughs> <in my>
4: unit.
3: Oh, the guy to New End of the
2: seventies. <laughs> How <laughs> about children? You know, the children. You know, Aw, oh, good little. We're having feelings about stuff. <laughs> they are hysterical. I
4: mean, yes, that's not to say that we haven't had advancements.
2: Um, <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, the, the talking on a broader scale of culture. You know,
4: that was the only thing that's real. Yes. Yeah. Is there ever um,
3: anything that you dubbed or discovered or were studying that you thought was one thing that turned out to be
1: so completely different and so how do you kind of find out what it was, like how did you figure it out? It's like, <laughs> not quite articulating, but I'm just kind of curious. There are plenty of puzzling things that I think of that I don't know that I've ever really discovered what they are. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find the debates interesting. Uh, a Riton, for instance, in Minoan culture, it's a conical thing often with a little tiny handle, so it's, it's open up here, and it's always got a second hole at the bottom, so what is it? You know, it doesn't hold fluid, it'll just pour straight through. Uh, you know, it's a funnel, some people have suggested that, but many of them are very fancy, and they're even shown in processions being given to uh, great kings or whatever, you know, so why? We often call it a ritual object, and people have come up with all sorts of things that it could be, um, if it's a funnel, well, maybe, but what if you put wool in there and then you pour your wine in there because there's so many bits that are floating in it, you know, and they'll filter it. And maybe that would be a way to use it. Um, also they have these gigantic pithoi that they would store wine in, right, and you can't move those things, but maybe you could take that thing, put it into the fluid, cover it with your hand, pull it over here, and then let go and could pour water in, or you know, wine or whatever into a cup. That's clever. but. Ultimately, we don't
3: know what they are. So it's just a two-hole vessel.
0: There's a joke there. I hope you enjoyed listening to the archaeology panel from the Steampunk World's Fair. Once again, I'm Amber Love from Vodka O'Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com, which I'm sure you know by now, right? So you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. And if you can, please go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked to show support for the show and for the website. If you have any questions about Steampunk World's Fair, um, I can try to answer them for you. But I would uh, if, if nothing else, I can at least direct you to the right people. If you have questions about attending the show or being a vendor or a performer at the show, um, I know several of the people who are on staff there. So um, they've already booked their dates for 2016. It's May 13th to the 15th, held at the same wonderful hotels, the Embassy Suites and the Radisson in Piscataway, New Jersey. And um, you know, it's always such a great, wonderful, weird time. I love it. And um, please let me know what you think of these recordings. Uh, obviously recording live has its own challenges. But if there's anything missed that you want me to try to cover more of in the future, just, you know, drop me a line. Thanks for listening. Cheers.